May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. The one who comes to us, the one who flows from us. Amen. So as we are approaching Lent, talking about punch keys and midweek services, we get this passage where we hear the rumors building, right? We hear that Jesus is talking in a way that no one else has ever talked before. Jesus is pushing people to think differently, to do different things, and the big deal people the Pharisees, the church leadership, the governing bodies are pretty upset about this. And they want to know why nobody's done anything. Why hasn't somebody stopped this guy? Because it's not like he came from the ivory towers from which we came, right? He is not one of us. He's just a person. Just a regular, ordinary guy from Galilee. We've talked about that before, right? Galilee is kind of this backwater, rural-ish town in the middle of nowhere by the sea. Not really by the sea and not really away from the sea, just up there. So certainly this is not that guy. If, if God was going to send a Messiah, then he would come from Bethlehem, from the house of David. Do we have a story about that? Certainly, he would be part of a good family. A family worth noting. Part of the upper echelons. He would have been raised in the temple and taught our ways. He would be part of this inner circle. But he's not. He's from the outside from the fringes, from the edges. He doesn't really fit in with the other rabbis. We know at the time the other rabbis kind of kept with the teachings, right? They didn't push the boundaries. They didn't move people from their comfort zone. And they definitely did not upset the political leaders. It's just not what you did. They just went with it. And this countercultural movement of Jewish people that starts all the way back as an exodus in Egypt becomes the exact thing they were running from. And they don't just do it once. We have this three times in the Old Testament and then again here in our Gospels. These people who were supposed to be the rebels. These people who were fighting against oppression. Fighting for equality and freedom. Fighting to be able to worship their God in the way that they experienced God. And in a way that made God available for everyone. Got caught up. And the way they did it was the only way to do it. We do this sometimes, right? We do this at church occasionally. 
There's only this way. We've always done it. And even though churches were originally started to be a place of welcome and encouragement and growth and challenge and freedom, we say this is our box and we live within this box. And the idea that we could open that box or expand that box or shape that box like a circle instead of a square is just beyond us. We do this in our community, right? We do this in organizations we are a part of. We do this in our society with groups and peoples. If we think about it, there has been somebody who has challenged us along the way at every step. And one of the weirdest parts is that as Americans, we were born out of rebellion. We were born out of the fact that we saw something that wasn't fair, something that was putting out groups, and we said, we don't want to live like this. We want to live in an inclusive society. We want to invite people in. And literally, from the moment we landed, bless their Puritan hearts, we have been finding ways to exclude people, to make the inside circle smaller. Even while reading scriptures like this. Scriptures where we easily see the quote-unquote bad guy is the one who is doing the excluding, the one who is holding so tight to tradition that they're missing God's work right in front of them. The one who's caught up in this is how it's got to be, that they're missing what could be. Instead of asking questions of Jesus and challenging Jesus, which they'll get to eventually, give us a couple of weeks, they're asking questions of the authorities, of the police. Why why don't you arrest him? Clearly he is a bad guy. Look at him. And the police are like, but Nobody's ever talked like this. Nobody's ever challenged us like this. Nobody has read with grace and love our scriptures and taught like this. Maybe we should stop for a second. Consider. Reflect. Maybe the challenge isn't for that person, but for us. Maybe the challenge is something that pushes us. That could be really hard. People don't like that. We don't like it when we're challenged. When we're faced with something that is contradictory to the way we believe, to the group of people that we feel we fit in with, that can be a really hard place to stand but the people who did that in this story found in that very place Christ's presence I don't know that I've told you this story before I've told this story before but I don't know if I told it to you and if I did I apologize it's a decent story so it fits when I was in seminary we had to take a short class during Advent. So we were on trimesters, but we had this weird three-week course during 
December that you had to take one every year. It was part of the system. And my first year, I thought that I would take urban ministry. I'd grown up in Appalachia, lived most of my life in what would have been suburbia if the steel mill hadn't closed and there was an urbia to be suburbia of, right? And I thought I kind of had a concept of what urban life was like. I mean, I watched Sesame Street. I knew how cities worked. I had watched enough Sex in the City at that point that I kind of had a concept of what city life was like. But the seminary in Columbus sits on the edge between a very rich, old-money Jewish section and the absolute ghetto of downtown Columbus. And when I say it sits on the edge, I mean I literally looked out my window to see the ghetto on one side, and my friend who lived on the other side of the dorm, we looked out her window to see beautiful mansions. The governor's mansion is in the same part as the seminary. And so I thought, I I can do this class. This is no problem. And so I walk in, and I am confronted with my first African-American professor ever. No problem. I am modern. I can do this. And we start reading these books. And I think, this is baloney. And one day, he has the audacity to tell me that it is white privilege to be able to get garden supplies and to garden your food when you live in the country. And Appalachian me, with in-laws who were subsistence farmers on rocky mountain soil in the middle of West Virginia, couldn't take it anymore. I'll give you Band-Aids. I'll forgive the color nude. Okay, you're right. Those are things that I do not deserve that I receive. But don't you dare tell me that my subsistence farmer in-laws have it better just because they're white than your urban counterparts here in the ghetto of Columbus because I'm not buying And I went on to tell him that, well, that's fine, except that, you know, in Columbus, from the ghetto, you can walk to the Social Security office if you have to. It's not that far. It's probably a mile or two, but it's not that far. And there are buses and infrastructure, and the city is set up to be city. There's bodegas and convenient marts, and schools are close. If your car doesn't work in the city, it's really no big deal. But where my husband grew up, that was a big deal. He wasn't my husband then. He was my boyfriend, but whatever. Where Travis grew up, those were a big deal. If you didn't have a car to get to town, you were just out of luck. If there was a shooting in the country, you could be buried before the ambulance would get there. There was no major medical center. In fact, there is only two level one trauma centers in the entire state of West Virginia. So tell me again how privileged they are. He went on to explain to me that that's not exactly what he meant. 
And while my challenge did push him, that he encouraged me to keep considering. It's been 14 years since I took that class. And I can humbly now say, Professor Dudley was right. There are gifts that come just by the sheer fact that my family lived in Appalachia and that people in Appalachia are mostly white. Like all of the Appalachian aid bills that have ever come through. Much easier to get aid to people who look like you, who are part of the circle like you. You understand why those poor little barefooted white kids need those things. Much easier than you can understand why the little brown kids don't have shoes when they live in the city, when there should be some group helping them. It was hard to hear. It was a challenge that I did not want to face. And in fact, of all of my seminary courses, that one probably pushed, shook, and changed and challenged my faith more than any other class I took. I'll get to your question. Hold on. But it taught me this thing, right? In that class, I was the Pharisee. I was the person with the power. I was the one asking the questions, pushing the boundaries, and wondering, why aren't we doing anything? Why hasn't anybody shut this guy up? How can he possibly be a professor if he has no concept of what rural life is actually like? what I found. By the end of my seminary career, not only was Professor Dudley right, not only did I grow a whole lot more in my understanding of racial relations and how that plays out in urban, rural, and suburban settings, Professor Dudley actually became like one of my buddies. I liked Professor Dudley. He was a good guy. It is why we sing songs like Wade in the Water. It's why we sing songs like, Shall We Gather at the River? The influence that people of color have had on our faith and our culture is so quiet. It's almost imperceptible. But do you know that during the Civil War, the first Lutheran church ever built in America, in Ebenezer, Georgia, taught slaves how to read so that they could help the Union soldiers in battle. There was a Lutheran church that saw the value of those slaves and taught them. The value of the people on the fringes and called them in. Because that's where we always find Jesus. Jesus is never in the seat of power. Jesus is never the one who's standing there with all of the influence. If we want to see Jesus in our world today, we have to recognize that it's going to cause us to be uncomfortable. 
If we want to see Jesus interacting in our community, we're going to have to sit down and listen to the people who are on the outside edges. We're going to have to say, yeah, I could stand at the center because I've been in this community for a long time. Or I am part of this group or that group. Or I have this qualification or that qualification. Or whatever you think gives you your authority and power. You're going to have to look at that edge and say, but how do I get these people in? How do I make sure that they have a place at this table? Because what's supposed to flow from my heart is not judgment, not condemnation, not accusations, and not why aren't the police doing something about X, Y, or Z. But streams of living water. Streams of water that washes and cleanses and purifies. Streams of water that claims and calls and baptizes. Streams of water that adopt and invite in who make us part of a larger community, who expand the fringes from one spot to the next. Water that overflows and never ends. Those are the places that Jesus has found. That is the place the Holy Spirit is moving. So when you're uncomfortable, when it makes you nervous, when you're anxious, when you have to do something you've never done that way before, I invite you to look for how the Spirit is moving in that place. Who in that place is reflecting Christ's love? Who in that place is calling us to be the sacrificial people we were called to be? And where is that water from your heart flowing? Because that person, is the one that is most likely Jesus. Amen. What was your question, buddy? What does Gather of Columbus mean? Gather of Columbus? Yeah. Uh, Columbus is a city in Ohio that I went to school in. And uh, I don't, did I say maybe Greater Columbus, which is like the whole area? I don't know. I didn't know I said gather Columbus. Did I say that? Columbus was the town I was talking about. This is the capital city of Ohio. Yep. 